This is a podcast about new crops. You're going to love it. Join us on The Cutting Edge, a podcast in search of new crops for Wisconsin. When you're developing a new crop, that means at some point you have to deal with a whole set of new insect pests. Very true with hazelnuts. And today we have an opportunity to talk with Haley Shanovich, who is a researcher trying to figure out just what the insect pests are with hazelnuts. Hope you enjoy the episode. Today's guest is Haley Shanovich with the University of Minnesota. Haley, welcome. Thanks for joining our podcast. Can you uh, introduce yourself and what you what you've been working on there at the university? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for the introduction. I um, am a PhD student at the University of Minnesota, and so for my dissertation research, I study um, some of these different insect pests uh, in hybrid hazelnut. And I'm in the Natural Resource Science and Management program and hoping to graduate next summer. So yeah, I've been working in the system for three years now. So uh, Haley, I just got back from a driving tour across Wisconsin and it's, you know, pushing the last uh, half of July and there are Japanese beetles everywhere. And my understanding is you've been getting lots of questions or comments about it. So let's just jump in right there. Japanese beetles, what are they? How do they affect the plants? Tell us everything you got. Yeah, absolutely. So these beetles um, feed on so many different plants, as I'm sure all of you know. In hazelnuts, they do not feed directly on the hazelnut flowers or really clusters even themselves because the beetles are showing up in plantings in July usually. So they're mainly just feeding on leaves. There's some studies already that show that they seem to prefer younger more like juicier, leafier tissue. And so I've been noticing in the fields that they're really going for younger plants or um, plants that had been recently coppiced and are having um, a lot of new growth and way less on more mature plants. So with the coppiced thing, I don't, we don't know, for example, with a plant that's a perennial like hazelnuts, if the defoliation Um, really is impacting the yield or the plant's um, vitality that much, certainly in young plants. So if they're defoliating really heavily, um, newly planted hazelnuts, that's definitely a concern because um, those plants need to get established and start putting nutrient reserves down into the ground. And so if they're completely defoliating newly planted um, seedlings, that is a problem, but I, we don't really know if, if they're feeding on like a plant that is well established that had been recently coppiced, if that's really affecting the plant that much. And I really do not see a lot of feeding on taller or older plants. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting because the it's just sort of this debate that continues to rage among growers and even within our research group is how much damage is too much? Because it just, it looks terrible, especially some of these younger plants. Uh, It seems to make sense that you're reducing photosynthesis, so you should take some action. But on the other hand, if it's, you know, not causing any real damage. So I don't know, is there, how would, how would you figure out like what the threshold is? What would have to have, what kind of work would have to be done to be able to say definitively when it's time to spray and when it's not? 
Yeah, absolutely. There actually has been some work from another student at the university in grapes and grapevines. And they were trying to understand if Japanese beetles actually um, reduced yield at high enough numbers in the grape crop. And so I think so far that's been the most um, research that's similar to what we're talking about in a perennial crop. And basically what they found is that it um, didn't really reduce the grapevine uh, productivity at all. However, if it's a really young plant, like I said, then it did seem to impact its vigor over the years and its ability to like put nutrients down in the ground. So what would need to happen is having like different densities of Japanese beetles feeding on young plants or whatever age of plants you're interested in looking at and then um, quantifying either the yield or just the plant's growth over time. And for perennial crops, you do have to look at it for um, multiple years because these plants have um, reserves underground and can actually grow just fine usually even so a lot of plants even if they get defoliated pretty heavily one year they may have um, perfectly fine reserves still underground and not be very affected the subsequent year but if you're getting really high defoliation year after year after year then it's something that can definitely um, deplete the plant's stored resources. So another question is the is there anything growers can do short of spraying to try to reduce Japanese beetle populations? I mean, if you spray them uh, and you kill whatever's on there now, don't they just fly in from somewhere else and they just, yeah. I mean, is there really anything we can do? <laughs> That's a great question. So it's really hard to control for them because they can fly from such great distances. And honestly, I will preface with, they can, form really large feeding aggregations on plants and it can look really alarming like it can look like there are just thousands of beetles feeding and the defoliation can look like a lot um, especially on small plants but we actually um, as humans really easily overestimate the amount of defoliation that's happening so hmm. um, it's easy to see a plant starting to look like its outermost leaves and top leaves are starting to get a lot of feeding and so they kind of look lacy or skeletonized but there's still a lot of other leaf tissue sometimes on lower leaves or especially towards the bottom of the plant in the middle of the plant that might not be getting defoliated at all and that's still all perfectly fine photosynthetic tissue so sometimes it's just those like top or outer leaves that are getting defoliated um, and that's really fine so sometimes we can see them feeding and it looks like a lot and really alarming, but we don't actually really need to take any action. And so that's something that's still being refined a lot that we need to refine as researchers is how to come up with some proxies that's like easier for people to understand and kind of estimate when is that threshold where they need to take action. But things that you can actually do to control Japanese beetles is uh, highly debated. <laughs> because they can fly in from so far. And once they start feeding somewhere and start emitting, they have these um, scents that they emit called aggregation pheromones. And so it attracts a bunch of beetles to the area. And then once they start feeding on the plant, the plant is releasing kind of some like defensive compounds and just like certain smells that beetles can tell it's already have, has been fed on. 
And so the smell of the fed on plants and the scents being emitted from the beetles is like constantly attracting more to the area. So it's just really hard to control for them because I've heard many stories where someone will, will spray something for the beetles and then like have to spray multiple times within the same week um, because there are so many flying in. I don't really think that it's necessary to be spraying unless you are really worried about your plants, unless they are really young plants that are you're seeing a lot of really heavy defoliation on. Something else that people do is um, very debatable is try to mass trap beetles. So putting out um, those pheromone traps that are available for the beetles um, away from the field, not in your field or next to it, <laughs> but um, uh, kind of adjacent to it and try to just like constantly be, and they will go for that trap. You will get hundreds and hundreds in a trap, sometimes even like a thousand a day, and then just keep taking out um, the bag that's attached and throwing it away or burning it or something. And so mass trapping is something people do. Something people are trying is planting like another really desirable plant or crop that the beetles like adjacent to the field to try to lure them away. And there are many, many crops that, um, or plants people use for this because the beetle has such a wide variety of things it feeds on. Um, and then another one is spraying some of these biological control agents people might have heard of. So there are like ones that you can spray on the grass because as larvae, the beetles are um, living under turf grass and feeding on the roots. And they really like that short turf grass. So if you're mowing your field, if you have grass in between your hazelnuts, that's definitely somewhere they could be laying eggs and then developing as larvae underground. And so there are, um, I think one is a, a fungus that will attack the beetle that you can buy and put into a spray and spray that on the ground. And then another one contains uh, nematodes that actually feed on the beetle larvae. Both are, um, you know, compared to just a conventional spray, definitely a lot more spendy because it's like the living biocontrol agent. But um, with them, what happens is over time, they either the fungus or the nematodes are multiplying underground. And so you get a lot more longer term control. But again, that only controls the land um, where you've sprayed and the beetles can fly in for elsewhere. So that's why these are all kind of controversial or debatable that how much control they really offer. So it does seem like maybe this is a pest where we kind of just ride it out. In other words, there really isn't that much we can do about it. If on mature plants, it's probably not causing much damage. Uh, of all the other things on our to-do list, maybe controlling Japanese beetles isn't one of them. And we just let the system readjust like these hopefully tend to do with invasive insect pests as the natural predators develop or, or start to build and we see something start to stabilize. But um, the the pheromone aggregation to me was is kind of fascinating that you brought that up because when we walk through a planting, often we'll see a plant that's complete, not completely defoliated, but it's just littered with bugs and all kinds of skeletonized leaves. And then there's a plant right next to it, like two bugs on it, no damage. And we often think, well, boy, that must be resistant. But is that maybe just a function of the plant next to it was the first one to get fed on? And so that's where they all go. Or is there actual resistance in these hybrid hazelnuts, some of them, to Japanese beetle feeding? 
That's a great question. Yeah. Honestly, that's one of the questions I'm looking at with my research. So I have been the last uh, three summers taking data on kind of the distribution of beetles within a field. And so what I'm going to do is um, kind of do a spatial analysis to see if the beetles are just kind of grouped in a hot spot in the field, or if they are randomly distributed and it's more attributed to like what variety the hazelnut is or what genotype. So um, that's something that I'm looking at, but actually for some of my master's work, some of my previous research, I looked at Japanese beetles in apple orchard systems and uh, we actually saw that they did prefer certain apple varieties over others. So there definitely could be some resistance within the hybrid hazelnuts, but we don't, we can't tell that for sure until we rule out that it's not just their aggregation pheromones. And certainly when you do see a phenomenon like that, like a bunch of beetles on one plant and none on the one right next to it, it certainly can be um, due to the aggregation pheromone. So it's, yeah, a complicated question that I hope I can answer within the next year. So last question on Japanese beetles. Uh, we have a bunch of hazelnut plantings up in Northern Wisconsin, Spooner, Ashland, Bayfield. We don't have any Japanese beetles, never have. Uh, is that because they haven't gotten here yet? Is it because something about our soils or winter? Is it just a lack? We, you know, we don't have a lot of turf grass or uh, golf courses or anything around. Is, so what's going on? Why don't we have it? And with climate change, are we eventually going to have them? That's, that's also a great question. So I think in both Minnesota and Wisconsin, Japanese beetles are not in every county yet. Um, from what I've heard from growers in the Driftless uh, region, for example, they just recently really have become established there um, in the last couple of years. And previously they had really never saw them there. So I'm assuming um, Northern Wisconsin, like up in Bayfield Ashland area is probably similar. I mean, not similar landscape, but similar in that they might be just more slowly getting there. <laughs> um, but the other thing is that they do really need turf grass to thrive in an area. So if you don't have a lot of golf courses or athletic fields or huge um, tracks of turf grass near you, they just might establish way slower in the area. Certainly being up north to the there is some research being done, not by myself, but other researchers at the University of Minnesota looking at how cold of underground temperatures they can survive. And I don't think they've reached a conclusion yet, but that certainly could be a factor too, is just colder underground temperatures in the winter. Well, let's move on uh, to some other, uh, some other insect pests. So you, you started your research project and one of the, as I understand it, one of the questions was just what are the main insect pests of hazelnuts? I mean, this is such a a new crop and no one's, you know, we kind of have some anecdotal evidence of causing some problems, but no one's ever looked at it formally with the research mind, right? So what are the main insect pests? You want to just give a quick interview of, of each that you've found so far? Yeah, absolutely. When I um, started the project or came on as a PhD student on this project, uh, Jason, you were one of the folks who I was talking to you about what you've been seeing because <laughs> um, no one has really characterized what all the pests are and kind of when they occur in the crop and things like that. So uh, over the last few years, I found out that there are a handful of them. And so one of the main ones that you all already knew about, but weren't sure what the species was because most of these insects, a few of them are native and a few of them are invasive. 
And so some of the native ones just had never really been studied before because they, because we never grew commercial hazelnuts in the area because we never had an economic crop that we were concerned about. Um, and so these insects previously just fed on wild hazelnuts in the forest, for example. So um, we didn't really know what species they were exactly. Anyway, so the hazelnut weevil turned out to be one of them, um, which is its common name, its official common name. It feeds on uh, the hazelnuts of American hazelnut in the forest. And they have started to find folks hybrid hazelnut plantings and can infest those just the same as the wild ones. So they are the those uh, small brown beetles that have a long snout, if you've seen them before. Uh, and they will drill a hole into the hazelnuts, lay an egg in it, and then their larvae develop in the hazelnut eating the kernel. So they directly impact the yield and there's nothing left after the larvae has developed. And Haley, I should jump in, let the listeners know that you've got a great presentation you gave at the conference back in March, and we've posted that on our website, midwesthazelnuts.org. So if folks want to see pictures of these, these bugs, uh, that's the place to go. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, there's a lot of great pictures in there if you need a reference photo or just want to see them. Um, but so that is one that um, we didn't know exactly what the species is and figured out um, because there are actually multiple weevils that feed on all sorts of different native nuts like acorns and chestnuts and things like that. So we weren't sure what the species was until recently. Also, um, another insect that is of concern is uh, this native buprested. So it's a type of beetle that bores into the wood of trees and woody plants. It's related to, its closest, most famous relative is the emerald ash borer. So it does similar damage where it bores into the wood of um, trees or woody plants, and then it feeds on that cambium layer or the layer um, that the tree transports water and nutrients in. And so it essentially uh, slowly kills the plant because it's cutting off its nutrient transport. So we uh, started seeing some damage in our plantings in Minnesota, where we were having some major branch dieback. And we at first thought it was eastern filbert blight dieback. But then we started noticing some swellings on the branches and some exit holes that the beetles leave when they exit the branch. And so um, we realized that we had some type of buprested beetle. And just recently, I think this last summer, we figured out what species it is. And it did not have a common name previously, but we just officially got it named so it's a funny phenomenon with insects. The uh, major authority of insect names is the Entomological Society of America, and they have a huge database of all the insects that have official common names, and this was not one of them. So we got it officially named, and we can refer to it as the hazel stem borer now. Oh, uh, you, got, you got to name it. I got to name it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I just, we just thought that was the most uh, logical, straightforward <laughs> name yeah. for the beetle. Yes. The hazel stem borer. Yes. <laughs> so yes, right. that is one of the insects we've been noticing. And we have it in plantings in Minnesota, but yeah, have not heard a lot about it from other growers. And so that's something um, also I'd like to mention is that uh, in, a, in Jason's last newsletter, the last um, Upper Midwest Hazelnut newsletter, there's a survey 
for what insects you're experiencing in your plantings. And I would love to know if you're experiencing this stem borer. <laughs> so, yeah. So I've got questions on both of these, but let's keep going. So we've got weevils and we've got the hazel stem borer. What, what other pests? And then um, the other two uh, major ones I would say are the uh, Japanese beetles, which we talked about that people see. And also, actually not an insect, but a mite, and it's called the big bud mite. And that one is this microscopic little mite that basically infests both, both the vegetative and floral buds of the hazelnut plant. So it can go both inside leaf buds and inside those floral buds. And it kind of has a really weird life cycle where it infests the buds in summer. So it infests like the buds for the next year in summer when they're developing. And then it spends all of late summer and fall and winter feeding on that internal bud tissue and reproducing. And then by the following spring, like usually in May, they start emerging from those buds and going to find the new developing buds. So they spend most of their lifetime um, safe inside vegetative or floral buds. And what happens is they're called um, big bud mite because the feeding that happens inside the bud causes um, it to basically swell up or turn into a gall. And so the buds look enlarged and they look about like three or four times as big as normal sized uninfested buds on the plant. And so that's where it gets its name. But essentially any infested buds will usually not develop. So they either won't develop into leaf tissue or they'll develop really deformed. And so people might've seen this on their plant if they ever see leaf tissue that emerges and just looks really wonky or funky looking. It probably was because it was infested by these mites previously and they were eating on most of the leaf tissue in there before the bud tried to open up. Um, and then with floral buds, their feeding just causes the flower to abort. And so basically you just don't get hazelnuts if they were feeding on floral buds. So they can also directly impact yield. Um, but they, they do, unlike some of these other insects, seem to really prefer certain um, hazelnut varieties over others. I see them a lot on some very specific varieties and not on other ones. And we're still trying to figure out why that is exactly, but we think it has to do with the timing of when the buds are opening up. So each of these varieties has slightly different, um, we use the word phenology, which means kind of the timing, the study of the timing of their life cycle. And so each of these plants, um, even though they're like all super closely related in all hybrid hazelnuts, they do have slightly different timing to their development. And so some of the varieties open up their buds a little sooner than other ones. Even if it's just a matter of days, we think it might be contributing to this uh, phenomenon. But we don't really know how, it's an invasive species. So it came over uh, long ago when um, folks brought hazelnuts to, brought European hazelnuts to North America. So it's associated with, um, European hazelnut and has originally came from Europe, but we um, definitely have it in our hybrid hazelnuts here in the Midwest. It must have got transported on nursery stock or something um, when folks first started breeding way back in the um, early 1900s. And basically it seems to be a very variable pest. Like some folks have never seen it in their plantings in the Midwest and others 
um, have some of it. I have rarely heard of really high infestations. Some of our experimental plantings in Minnesota have high infestations, and I know you have a fairly high one in Bayfield, Jason. Yeah, and we've really seen it go up and down from year to year for whatever yeah, reason. Yeah, that's another thing. It does seem to vary a lot by year to year. So those are the four, I think that's four, right? Those are the four yep. main paths that I've been looking at. Of these four, I think I know your answer, but um, which is the biggest concern? Which yeah. one? From everything I'm seeing and hearing from other growers or and hearing from growers, the insect I get probably uh, the most questions about by far is the hazelnut weevil. Yeah. <laughs> right. And you've seen losses of 30, 40, 50%. How high have you yeah. measured in terms yeah. of like the percent of nuts that, that were predated? In our fields in Minnesota. So in, uh, and this is around the Twin Cities area, we have been seeing between like 20 and 30% losses every year. Hmm. So, yeah. And it's, it's always the, the hazelnut weevil there. Are there other weevils like that are infesting oak trees? If you plant hazels nests to oak trees that they'll move from the oaks to the hazelnuts, or is that, that the only one of concern? That's a good question. So that's something we weren't sure about when I first started, whether this is just one species or is it multiple native weevil species? Um, infesting the hazelnuts and from what we've from what I've seen over the last three years and what I've um, yeah what I've seen is that basically it's just one species it's um, this species the hazelnut weevil and it exclusively feeds on hazelnut so it cannot complete its life cycle it cannot even survive on other plants so it can't survive on oak or anything like that so it is specifically just from has come like from wild hazelnuts. There are weevil species that feed on oaks, but from what I can tell, none of the ones we're seeing in the hazelnut are ones that feed on oak trees. So you don't need to worry about if you have like oaks in your um, windbreak or tree line or something that you would be attracting. Yeah, yeah. okay. Weevils. Yeah, so it's really just from wild hazelnuts. All right, well, let's dig in on, on weevils given it's the most important one. So describe its uh, life cycle. What's it feeding? When's it feeding? When's it mating? How's it overwintering? If we wanted to try to monitor it or scout for it, how do we do it? That's something that we also didn't really know when I first started. Like uh, people had mentioned seeing them at various times throughout the summer. And it's such an understudied insect, just being a native forest insect that no one really knew um, much about its life cycle. So over the last three years, I've um, kind of parsed it out. And so basically the weevil adults emerge from the ground in starting in May. And so you can start to see weevils on your plants depending where you are as early as like mid to late May and depending on the temperatures that year. Um, and then the weevils kind of hang out in the plants for a bit and feed a little bit on the leaves. It's, it's, it wouldn't be very noticeable to like see any defoliation from them, but they kind of all are emerging and waiting for each other to emerge and just hanging out on the plants. So you can usually see that starting to happen in May. And what's and then, the best way to, to find them? I mean, we used to them? look for them and we never could find them, but then you came <laughs> along and all of a sudden you found them everywhere. So what's the, what's the secret? Yeah. Um, so a way you can sample for them is called beet sheet sampling. And so it's a very low tech way to sample plants that entomologists use. And basically you just take a canvas or a tarp or something and lay it down. 
um, in between your hazelnut row. And then you use like a broom or whatever, some sort of large stick baseball bat to kind of gently like beat the plant onto this tarp or canvas. Um, and they fall out of the trees super easily. They, they're pretty clumsy. They don't, aren't really good at hanging on. And actually their um, innate like reaction to things, to predators and to um, something like being shaken out of the tree is to play dead. So they will just fall onto the canvas and play dead, <laughs> maybe start to walk away after they recover. Um, but so you can see them pretty easily that way. Um, they're probably as big as one of your fingernails. So um, they're fairly easy to spot and they kind of range from uh, tan to more of a darker brown color, but they're pretty identifiable because they have this long snout on them. And yeah, you can look back at um, my presentation photos to see some photos of them, but they, uh, that's the easiest way. Sometimes too, if you just are looking at the developing clusters, especially starting in June more, sometimes you'll just see them uh, sitting on the cluster and their color contrasts the involucre really well because the involucre is like a light green color and they're like a brown color. So sometimes you can just see them on the clusters. So back to the life cycle, they, they've emerged from the ground, the adults are up in the canopy in May. Usually in May, there aren't really any clusters that you can see. So, and you said they're just hanging out waiting for everybody else to show up. So, so now what? Yeah, so they're hanging out waiting for everyone else to show up and for clusters to start developing. Then moving into June, um, they will start mating once the rest of the weevils have emerged. So usually like mid-June, they start mating. And then um, once those clusters start developing, they will um, start laying eggs. So usually that starts in like, um, yeah, probably like, like it's, it's very quick. It's basically as soon as there are clusters that you can see. <laughs> so it's usually like mid to late June is like peak egg laying. And then that goes into the first week of July or so. This year, this spring has been super weird where we, had just such a weird spring and everything's really delayed this year. So this year I'm actually seeing a lot of um, weevils laying eggs, uh, even till now, just this last week when I was out in the field, I saw quite a few weevils still laying eggs. So um, wow. this year they've been pushed back a bit, I think. So it could go, the peak time that they are mating and laying eggs is like mid-June to mid-July. So now the eggs are laid on the, the developing clusters and does the nut, it can't be, it doesn't develop around the egg. The egg hatches and the larva tunnels in. How, how yes. is it getting into the... Yeah, so the female, she uses that really long snout she has to basically drill a hole into the developing shell of the, of the hazelnut. And so it's um, the hazelnut shell hasn't really hardened yet. So it's fairly easy for her to do this. And then she lays an egg into that hole. And so the egg is basically almost drilled all the way into where the kernel will be developing. So then that egg will hatch inside basically and be able to access the kernel. So uh, sometimes the kernel hasn't even developed yet and the larvae is like waiting for the kernel to start developing. So it's basically as soon as kernel development is happening, those eggs are, are being laid. Yeah. And so then the larvae will feed on the developing kernel. 
um, throughout the whole summer, basically, and then right before harvest, when the shells have hardened and the hazelnut um, is maturing, um, is pretty mature, almost ready to pick, the weevils will usually drill a hole. Um, you, I think it's normally towards that same place where the egg was first deposited. So there's already kind of like a hole started there and then they can chew their way out and uh, they drop to the ground and they actually burrow underground and over winter um, till the next year. So they will like drop immediately under the plant. So if you are starting to have or have noticed a hazel hazelnut weevils in your planting, they are not moving in and out of the field. They are just dropping immediately to the ground and overwintering right there in the field. Pest of this magnitude or potentially 20 to 40% losses. I mean, this is not something you can just tolerate. If we're going to try to grow hazelnuts commercially, we're going to have to control this one way or the other. So talked a little bit about controlling them as the larvae are emerging from the nuts in the fall, which is great, except we've lost all those nuts. So what, what do you think at this point? Are there other things we can do using IPM principles uh, to to try to control this insect? What, what do you feel like are our best options at this point? Yeah, this insect is tricky to control because it spends the majority of its lifetime as a larvae inside the nut. So it's um, like safe inside the nut for most of its life cycle. Um, but the adults do show up before the kernels have really started to develop. So it, there is this window of time from like mid-May to early June um, where the adults are not laying eggs yet. So I think that timing will be really crucial um, if folks have really high infestations in their fields to do some type of um, spray. Are there going to be some of these softer, greener chemistries we can use, or is this going to be like Punk or Coolio? That is a question that I have not had like the ability to look into yet. We, that is a great question, but we really need to do some um, organic and conventional insecticide trials with this insect to see what works because weevils are um, a very hardy, yeah, I'll use that word, hardy beetle species. When it comes to beetles, they are built like little, um, <laughs> I don't know what the word is. They're basically wearing some pretty tight fitting armor. So weevils are, I think one of the insects that they have realized can survive for a short period of time, like in a vacuum or without oxygen for a while even, because they are so tight fitted, their shells are so tight, their exoskeletons are so tight that they, um, basically can survive without oxygen for a while. So this is why it makes them hard to treat with insecticides because they can basically hold their breath for a long time. <laughs> and huh. so um, sometimes they can be kind of resistant to certain insecticides. However, not all weevils are like this, but that's why they've had some trouble with plum curculio, I know. Um, so Insecticide trials definitely need to be done. Also, bull, the bull weevil in cotton is another one that's like um, something that's been a nightmare to control over the years, I know. So yeah. that's not something I'll have time to investigate during my time here. But I know in Europe, they have a very similar weevil species that does the same thing to their hazelnuts in Europe. And I think the only insecticide they have found to work are pyrethroids. So I mm. definitely think this needs to be work that's followed up and um, yeah, trialed. The, do I have it right that 
even if you lived next to a wild, like if your planting was 10 feet from a wild hazelnut planting, where maybe the, you know, the weevils have been there for a long time, it's not like there's an army marching into your, your hazelnut planting every year from that wild planting, right? They stay pretty close to home. Is that true? And so maybe yeah. the main concern is that just a slow buildup over time within your own resident population. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, I that I I mean I'm not a hundred percent sure because I haven't studied their movement from like forest to field, but I, I I from what I can tell, they're not moving around a lot. They are just kind of staying put, staying where they are. Maybe they move from like one plant to another within a field. Um, but I don't think they're like marching from the forest to the hazelnut plantings, like you're saying. Yeah. Okay. I think that's safe to say. And they're right. not very good flyers either, I will add. They technically have wings. I really, really have rarely ever seen them fly. I think they're just kind of clumsy flyers and prefer not to do so. <laughs> so I don't think they're flying around either to different plants. Well, maybe maybe this isn't going to be that big of a deal because, I mean, growers have an incentive, pretty strong incentive in the fall to harvest every nut they can. And so if we keep them out, you know, by harvesting, usually it seems like, I mean, my experience is you go out and you harvest hazelnuts and then you come back the next week and the desk in your office, say, is covered in weevils. Like they've emerged after you harvest them, it seems like. So I wonder if just picking all the hazelnuts is maybe the best strategy so those weevils can't drop down into the, the larvae can't drop down into the, the duff layer to perpetuate the life cycle. Yeah, yeah. So the, the, the larvae, since the eggs are being laid over this whole period of like a month, kind of like I said, from late, or, or sorry, from when did I say <laughs> mid-June to like mid-July, um, the larvae are kind of all developing at slightly different rates because they've all been laid over a month. And so some will have left when you're harvesting. So if you see exit holes um, ever on your nuts, like a little uh, hole that just, yeah, a little hole. And basically if you would crack the hazelnut open, there would be nothing inside or just like um, no kernel essentially or half eaten kernel. The larvae has already exited. But a lot of times someone like you said, Jason will harvest and you'll have a lot of larvae emerging after you harvest. So that's great. That's kind of like you did some sanitation work already. So you are obviously those weevil larvae will not be able to drop and get into your field. So sanitation like that, like not allowing a lot of nuts to drop is certainly um, a way to have control as well. But I will say, like you said, I don't, it would be awesome if it doesn't turn into a big problem for all the growers. But what I've heard is from folks is some people have never seen them. And so they might just never get them where they are because maybe they don't have forests with wild hazelnuts there or who knows, or just haven't bought nurse just didn't have any on their plants when they planted them so some people just might not have them and others who I've heard from have had them for years so I think it depends if you just have a built-up population in your area or not too. Let's switch bugs here for a second the uh, hazel stem borer to me is kind of a fascinating one because in the hazelnut world we often see dead branches we've seen dead branches since the project began you know 20 years ago and we often attribute it to maybe there's a little eastern filbert blight or that the plant sort of recycles its wood because a, sometimes we see a branch that puts on a ton of nuts uh, one year, the next year, the branch looks pretty sick and, and is dead. But I wonder if maybe what we've been seeing is a lot of hazel stem borer and we just have no idea 
So any sense of how widely distributed it is, if, if growers wanted to diagnose it, potentially, you know, take us through exactly how they would do that or what they would be looking for um, to see if it yeah. was stem borer. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, here in the Minnesota plantings, uh, we were seeing a lot of stem die back. And the first year um, I was out here, 2020, summer of 2020, um, I had just been told that, yes, it was the same reasons that you said, Jason. And then summer 2021, um, we had to take some cuttings. of. I wanted to do like a lab experiment. So I was taking some cuttings from the hazelnut plants to bring inside. And I started noticing that some of these cuttings had swellings and little holes on them. And so honestly, if I went to, I feel like a lot of times, or at least for me, I hadn't looked so closely at the individual stems of the plant because they get, it's a shrub and they get so... Um, bushy and leafy, and it's hard to even see some of those individual stems, especially towards the center of the plant. Um, and so I just hadn't been looking there. But basically, it's somewhat easily diagnosable um, because what you'll see is it'll be, and I've noticed they don't tend to like branches that are too small in diameter. So I've only personally seen them on well-established, more mature plants. So plants that are um, probably six years older, older, that's starting to have a wider diameter stem. And um, they tend to burrow not super close to the base of the plant. I've noticed it's kind of more in the middle range. And it can be all the way up into where the stem is starting to like um, branch out and have leaves. So it's kind of in that mid range of the stem. And basically what happens is where the adults lay their the adults will kind of um, lay their eggs into the bark and then it's actually the larvae that burrows around in the cambium and they burrow in a circular fashion so they kind of burrow around the circumference of the stem and it directly cuts off nutrient transport because they've made a full circle line around the stem and is like completely cut off the nutrient transport for that stem and it will cause a gall to form. It's not super noticeable, but it looks like a swelling. So it, it doesn't look like a gall, how we normally think of where it's a raised like bump or um, like hemispherical shape, but it's more of this like swelling on the branch. Um, and so if you are seeing that, you can like cut off that branch. And if you want to confirm if there's a larvae in there or not, you can actually like use a knife to kind of dissect that swelling area and see if there's a grub in there and they kind of look different than how we usually imagine a grub so they don't look like Japanese beetle grubs they're in a different family and so they are more they kind of almost look like a tapeworm which is kind of nasty but they're kind of an elongated white shape and they um also when they exit they leave kind of this um characteristic exit hole it's in the shape of like the letter d so sometimes if a branch is already dead and you're curious if it might have been from one of these beetles, you can look and see if there's a swelling or one of these D-shaped exit holes. And if you see an exit hole, that's like absolute confirmation that there was one of these beetles in there at some point. Um, so those are the most characteristic things. And I think there's photos of all of that in the presentation as well. Okay. And is the, the stem usually like it leaves out in the spring and then dies. So it's, it's really striking or is it a stem that just doesn't leaf out in the spring? Um, it can have, I've, I've seen it 
I've seen them have all sorts of symptoms. So sometimes the branch will be, if it's like that year, like damage from that year, the branch might leaf out and then die over the summer. So it can look wilty later in the summer, um, especially like in August. So I remember last August seeing, that's when I first just last summer noticed so many of these in our Minnesota plantings as we were starting to see a lot of wilting branches. And we did have a drought last summer. So I was wondering if it was the drought, but then I started to notice that all of these wilting branches had these D-shaped exit holes on them. Um, but also I will say that buprestids are kind of known for targeting weakened trees. And so drought years um, make it much easier for the beetles to, um, so plants kind of have these defensive compounds they can use to deter insects and buprestids are somewhat sensitive to that. And so in a year where the plant is stressed, so in drought years, it makes it way easier for the beetles to um, develop it successfully inside of the plants. So I think last year we saw so much damage here in Minnesota because of the drought. And I'm wondering if we'll see some this year. I know Wisconsin's been getting a lot of good rain, but the Twin Cities area has been um, really dry, actually. So I'm huh. wondering if I'm going to see a lot of that here again this summer. These stem borer beetles, are these beetles that growers are likely to see? I mean, do you have to really look hard or are they flying at night or what, or moving around at night? Or how do you, how would you ever find these, the adults? The, uh, yeah, the, the adults are actually um, sadly really pretty. <laughs> huh. So they... <laughs> just like Japanese beetles, like all these beautiful insects are just terrors. But so this insect, um, the adults, I noticed them flying around in June. So the adults, um, we're taking data this summer as well, but we think the adults kind of emerge in June and are mating and laying eggs during that time period. And I don't know much, this is a very understudied species, unlike Japanese beetles, but it kind of seems like they also aggregate in an area of the field and are mating and kind of flying around and they're like a metallic-y um, reddish to purple color and they're pretty small they're probably only about the size of like a pinky nail finger or your pinky fingernail <laughs> and so they're um pretty small but you'll see I saw like a whole almost like little swarm of them flying around um, a section of a field here in St. Paul this summer. So you can see the adults if you're like in the right place at the right time. Maybe the last main pest here, big bud mite. What's your take on, is there anything we can do about it as a grower? You know, we've tried to monitor for it ourselves and we failed miserably. Uh, and then you helped us, but it took, you know, sending samples to you using a pretty decent microscope because these things are small and it's hard to find a, when they're, when they're moving from bud to bud. So just talk us through it, you know, how you scout for these and if there's ever, ever anything we're going to be able to do about them. Yeah, absolutely. I will just say they are extremely hard to scout for because they are microscopic. And so I was kind of describing their life cycle before. So they're similar to the weevils, pretty safe for most of their life cycle in terms of us being able to do some sort of control. So they are kind of safe inside of the plant buds for most of their life cycle. But there's this period of period of time, it's like about um, what I'm finding is about 90 days. So from uh, late April or early May, all the way through 
June, uh, there is a period, or sorry, late May, <laughs> sorry, early May through, yeah, probably the end of June, early July, that they are migrating into new buds. And so that is the period of time where something like a spray could be done and when monitoring should be done or scouting. So basically the mites are leaving last year's buds and migrating into new buds. And so when they migrate, they're like moving along the branches of the same plant, or sometimes they're using the wind a little bit to disperse them to neighboring plants, but they're not moving very far from my understanding. They're either, yeah, dispersing with uh, like within the same plant or onto just neighboring plants. And they are moving in huge, um, like basically they all leave in one big flow from the previous bud that they were in. And there's like hundreds of them in each uh, big bud basically. And so what I was doing to monitor for them was using like a double-sided sticky tape. And I taped that really tightly around um, a stem that I saw a big, a big butt on. And so when they would walk across the tape to get to a new neighboring bud, they would get stuck on the tape. And then I could look at that tape under a microscope, but I will say <laughs> it took me a really long time to train my eye to see these things, even on a tape under a nice microscope, because they are um, very tiny. They're only a fourth of a millimeter long and they are kind of a translucent white color. And so if there's anything else on the tape, like pollen blowing around from other trees or grasses or um, some sort of like sand or dust or something, it can be incredibly hard to see them. So it is just such a pain to scalp for these things. And so that has been part of my um, dissertation research is monitoring for them for the last three summers to kind of pinpoint when their peak migration is happening and then create a degree day model so that growers can then just use this degree day model to predict when they're migrating instead of having to scalp for them personally. And if you are, if you do have a large infestation of them in your field and are worried about them, then you could do a spray during this peak migration period. And so far, that's the only form of control I've heard about folks using in Europe, but there is a lot more promise for resistant varieties as well with this insect more so I think than any of the other insects we've talked about today and they have had some success I know um, in Oregon with the European hazelnuts breeding for big bud mite resistance there so yeah there's hope for this insect to be controlled <laughs> yeah we had one of our top selections what we called SPC2D5 uh, we threw it out we've discontinued working with it just because the big bud mite damage was so bad. You know, we didn't want growers to have to deal with that. So seems like breeding is going to be the best option here, find resistant varieties. Yeah. Um, well, Haley, so one bad thing about PhD projects uh, is that they come to an end from <laughs> our perspective. I'm sure you're eager to move on, but how much time do you have left and, and what are you wrapping up on the project? And then what's next for you? Do you know yet? Yeah. Thank you for asking. Um, yes, I, as much as I've enjoyed <laughs> the research I've been doing and everything and all the people I've gotten to meet, um, 
graduate school is really rigorous and tiring. So I am excited to graduate and, and move on. Um, but I am excited, like this work, getting to investigate so many different insects and just getting to be the first person who um, looks at all of these. I have a lot of ideas. And so whoever comes next, whether it be more students or um, uh, other researchers who get involved, I have a big list of ideas and other projects that should be done to follow up. So I'm excited to pass on some of, some of that. Um, but I have about a year left, so I haven't exactly entered the job market yet, but we'll be looking. So yeah, if there anyone listening who has cool, job opportunities for a PhD graduate, please let me know. I'm interested in um, research positions or um, some tort, I, yeah, I would love something that I could continue doing uh, research. So yeah, hit me up if you have any leads. <laughs> well, Haley, on behalf of all the growers, everybody involved in the industry, thank you because uh, we knew nothing and you have moved this industry so far ahead. Uh, it's been just great. So you'll, you'll publish a dissertation, yeah, and that'll be, available online at some point? Yeah, yes, I will be. Um, so the dis so my dissertation gets published with the university and that will be available online, but it's gonna be like one really massive book and not be fun to read. So I'm also publishing each of these, um, each of these chapters on each of these different insects separately. So they will also be more digestible, shorter articles on each of these insects. And I hope to make um, kind of a rough, uh, picture guide to the different insect species um, and what we know about them when we're they're occurring. Um, just kind of, yeah, a rough guide. It won't have a lot of um, control recommendations, like I said, because that needs to be work that's followed up by someone else. Um, yeah. But I will try to have like a short and sweet guide that has all the different insects and when they're occurring in the crop. So, yeah. That would be great. So you've still got a year left, though, so I'm sure we'll hear from you again, maybe toward the end of your project, we'll have you back on. And also, I'm guessing you'll present at our conference next March, yeah? Yeah, probably. I'll, I'll right. be here, so yeah. Good. Great. Well, Haley, thanks so much for your time. This has been great. And again, if folks have questions uh, or want to follow up, see pictures, uh, Haley's presentation is, is on our website. So Haley, anything left to add? Thank you, Haley. Brought to you by the University of Wisconsin-Madison Division of Extension.